Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the second program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about the national popular vote. What do we need and how can we get it? We'll talk about the history of the Electoral College and how it's working in the 21st century, what reforms are needed, which ones are possible, what is the National Popular Vote Compact, and how would it work? Is it right for Maine? This show was pre-recorded on February 14th. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. I'm pretty excited to have these two people on the show today. It's going to be great. Mike Saxel is a former Speaker of the Maine House of Representatives and currently Managing Principal at Maine Street Solutions, the leading proponent of the national popular vote in Maine. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me, Ann. And Kate Shaw is professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. She also co-hosts the um, well-regarded Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Anne. Thanks for having me. So let's get started, Kate. I'll put it to you first. The Electoral College, like what were they thinking? What were the founders thinking when they set it up this way? Uh, sure. And and maybe just to say first briefly, you know, what is the Electoral College? It's a term that's actually not in the Constitution, but it's the phrase that we use to describe the really complex system that is part constitutional and part statutory that we use to select the president. Um, so it's in the Constitution, even if the term Electoral College is not in the Constitution. And, and the question you asked is why? Why did they devise this system of presidential selection? Um, I don't think we have a definitive answer from the historical record. Um, there are records from the Constitutional Convention. I think that parts of those records can be kind of marshaled in support of different theories or different accounts. Um, one, maybe they put this Electoral College in the Constitution because they actually were afraid of too much democracy and they wanted to put some kind of mediating body, these electors, these wise men of judgment and discernment who would actually do the important work of choosing a president. So, so maybe that was why. Maybe it was because there was this concern on the part of small states that presidential selection would otherwise be dominated by a few large states and they were concerned um, about retaining some power in the selection of the national president. Um, it may have resulted from a compromise that was responsive to the desire of slave states to maximize their power by essentially replicating the Great Compromise, right, which gives each state, of course, an equal vote in the Senate, even though population determines representation in the House. So to replicate those dynamics in presidential selection by giving each state the same number of senators, of course, two, and representatives in the House, of course, varied widely. Um, and so those are a few potential explanations. It may have been a combination. It may also just have been the delegates at the Constitutional Convention in the summer of 1787 were exhausted. This was one of the very last things they did while designing our system of government. So I think that the, the single answer maybe never existed and in any event is lost to history. But those, I think, are some of the dynamics that explain how we got the system we have today. Uh, so how is it working? Like it's not working anywhere near like what they thought anymore, right? You know, if what they thought they were doing was devising a system where there would be this intermediate body that would make an independent judgment, it almost never worked that way anyway, right? So it never worked in that fashion. From very quickly on, 
electors simply channeled the will of the people. And, you know, and so the question becomes sort of why have this intermediate body that introduces this complexity and I think distorts our politics in, may, may, in ways that we can talk about. Um, and I don't think, apart from inertia, there's a great answer to the explanation of why we still have the Electoral College. It's very hard to amend the Constitution in a formal way. And in addition to the distortion of our politics that the college, I think, leads to, I think it's also performed pretty badly in that it has often misaligned popular will and the outcome of the single most important election we hold as a nation. And so, you know, depending on how you look at it, probably five times over the course of our history, there has been selected through this process as president, someone who did not command the most support nationwide. And that strikes me as an extremely high error rate for such an important decision. How is it working for Maine, Mike? Um, are electors bound in Maine? They are bound, but of course there are faithless electors. Um, Explain what I that is to people. What's a faith, faithless elector? That means uh, that the elector doesn't uh, accurately reflect the will of the vote of the people, uh, and that has uh, potential for occurring, uh, but it would be very unusual. But I think actually the national popular vote helps resolve that faithless elector or or, or makes it even less likely by um, by following by having those electors be appointed by the party of jurisdiction of the person that won the national vote. So I think the national popular vote is a good way to address the faithless elector problem. And more than that, it allows every single vote to be counted equally, whether it's a Maine in the first congressional district or Alabama. And uh, and it gives a different flavor to the way people would have to run for president. So talk about how, how the electoral college works in Maine, because we do not do the winner take all like some other states do. Mike, go ahead. So in 1969, uh, then speaker, uh, not yet speaker of the house, John Martin, but he was a legendary speaker for over 20 years. And a guy named Bennett Kate, who was the Senate majority leader, uh, father of uh, former uh, state Senator Roger Cates, a, a Republican and a Democrat got together and they were, Bennett Cates was very close with Margaret Chase Smith and John Martin was actually on staff with Ed Muskie. And 69 was a year uh, federally where they were trying to amend the constitution to do away with the electoral college. And a few states decided to move towards a district, congressional district based distribution of electors. And Maine was one of them. So Maine's system is unique now in the country, except for Nebraska, where if you win a congressional district, you'll get at least one elector. And then the person who wins the state gets the other elector and two, uh, two additional votes. So in Maine, in the last two cycles, uh, the second congressional district has gone with Donald Trump, but the Democratic uh, candidate has won the state. And so Republicans have gotten 25% of our electors and Democrats have gotten 75% of our electors. Which is not really proportional to the number of... No, no. no. I mean, if, in fact, if you are a Republican, you should be downright angry about that because they got 44% of the statewide vote. And so 25% is a meager second place. Well, but can I jump in and say, but it's better than most states would have allocated to the Republican <laughs> candidate, right? Because Maine sure. at least does a better job. So what 
most states do is to basically use a winner-take-all approach so that the statewide winner of the popular vote within the state gets all of the state's electoral votes. So, you know, that's if you're one of the smallest states and you have three electoral votes or you're California and you have 54 electoral votes, whoever wins in your state, whoever gets the most votes in your state gets all of those electoral votes. So even if Republicans have a 40 percent statewide you know, share of the vote, if it's a state that goes to the Democratic candidate, there are zero as opposed to less than 40 percent of the electors allocated. So and my understanding, and Mike, I'd love to hear more about this, but when Maine adopted this method in 69, which I think, you know, goes into effect for the 72 election, it thought that both it was this moment where it seemed as though an actual constitutional amendment under the stewardship of Senator Bayh was actually maybe going to happen, and it came close. But also that, you know, whether or not that happened, other states would follow suit and do what Maine was doing, which is at least to adopt something that provides more proportionality than a winner-take-all approach. And the only state that has done that so far is Nebraska, which I think went into effect only in 1992. And, and so... I think that Maine stands out there like actually as a, a, a really remarkable national kind of model and leader in doing this thing, which in the modern era was unique and remain, you know, totally unique and remains relatively unique, which is, again, to try to introduce some version of proportionality and genuine democracy in state level votes around the presidency. So what would, be the, what would be the problem with like that being the solution, like all the states do what Maine and Nebraska did? Like, why can't we just do that? I mean, from my vantage, the problem is gerrymandering and the changes the way people uh, apportion districts. Maine, at least, we are uh, what they call a commission state where we have a nonpartisan person who's the chair of the commission, and then there are equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans. And there's a lot of horse trading, and they eventually come up with a, a process that creates a measure of balance um, based on the a proportion. But most states are not that way. You can just look at Texas and and uh, shenanigans uh, there, or just about any state. I mean, Arizona is a relatively centrist, purple to blue state, and yet their legislature is overwhelmingly controlled by Republicans because of gerrymandering. And I'm sure that on the other side, the Democrats have done the exact same thing. That's not a partisan statement. It's just the, the liability of going to uh, the main base system nationwide. So it is the case that if you're going to tie the allocation of electors to congressional districts, you're just going to have this problem in a lot of states. And we have a subset of states that use some version of an independent commission to draw congressional districts. And I think the problem would be mitigated there. But that does introduce a, a different kind of distortion if you have the, con the congressional districts, even if then you allocate the two additional seats, like the Senate seats, presumably statewide to the statewide winner, um, that you know, mitigates to a degree the problem of gerrymandering of congressional districts. But I think that's why this is not a perfect solution to the problem. I agree with Mike about that. Isn't there also sort of a sequencing problem? Like who's going to go first, Texas or California? I mean, how would that work if we didn't all do it at once? Right. No, I mean, I think that's with any of these changes, there are these kind of, you know, proposed changes, proposed reforms. There are these collective action problems, right? Because the party that prevailed in the last presidential cycle is going to be very, very invested in not introducing a change that if it's, you know, predicting it's going to do the same in the next cycle would mean it is voluntarily relinquishing a very significant number of the electoral votes um, that it feels it and it's, you know, the presidential candidate likely to prevail in that state 
uh, needs. And and I agree that this sort of, um, I proposed in an article, you know, something I'm sure will never get much traction, but the idea of states proceeding in kind of red-blue pairs to, imp- mm-hmm. to introduce a, a change like, like the Maine and Nebraska one, which would be, well, yeah, if you pair, you know, California and Texas don't have the same number of electoral votes, but if you pair some comparable states and say, everyone's going to be giving something up, but democracy is going to be winning. And also, you know, states should be able to think beyond just the next presidential cycle. I mean, a, a very, you know, strange historical fact about the effort that we were just talking about to actually introduce an amendment that would abolish the Electoral College uh, that Birch Bayh was the kind of steward of. It was really, after sailing through passage in the House, it was really, it was the Senate that where, where the effort failed. And it was New York and the New York senators who really blocked the path. And actually, maybe in the House, the New York was a, a delegation that was res- resisting as well. But the point is, in the late 1960s, New York was actually the consummate swing state. And it was a lot of dem- Democrats from New York who were concerned about relinquishing the power power that they enjoyed because of their centrality in presidential elections that led them to block the most serious effort we've really ever had to abolish the Electoral College. And now that looks, you know, very short term in that obviously New York is a safe blue state at right. this point in presidential cycles. At least obviously the congressional map uh, has been was different in the last uh, the last cycle, although not in the special election that we just had here. But the point is you know, political dynamics and wins can change. And so you would think that state actors would be able to be a little bit more long-term in their thinking about what advantages and disadvantages would flow from reform. But I haven't seen a whole lot of evidence of that. Yeah, think about the last time a presidential candidate went to New York for any reason other than to raise money. Mm. Same with California, same with Texas, same with Florida. They're all reliably red and blue right now. And they only go there to, to get the dough and then they don't campaign at all. So, th- so thinking about like the problem with the electoral college, and Kate referenced like how many times it's happened that the popular vote and the electoral college were divergent. But doesn't it seem like this is getting to happen like more often lately? And why is that? The United States is a very closely divided uh, country, and the number of uh, persuadable voters is decreasing every year. And the sophistication with which campaigns run is increasing and will be even more informed now that we have AI up and running. And so in the next presidential election, it looks like already uh, the announced candidates, Biden and Trump, are talking about seven states. But those seven states aren't the the only limitation. They're also only talking to certain voters who are persuadable within those states. So the number is somewhere around 400,000 people in this country get to make a decision for the entire country. That's about, yeah. even if even if it wasn't those 400,000 people and it was their entire state, it would still only be about 18% of the electorate that has a say in the next presidential election. Yeah, and I mean, I think that the political scientists, Sides and Vavrick, talk about these two kind of twin dynamics in our politics right now, sort of calcification, which is like, you know, people having very strong kind of partisan identity and also parity. The parties are actually relatively balanced and matched in terms of the sort of national support or, you know, it, it, it obviously varies in kind of locally, but that means that that you know, small shifts can sometimes be outcome determinative. Um, and and in, to your question, Anne, about does it seem like this is happening more often? I mean, I, yes. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, in terms of when there has been this this, you know, divergence of 1824 and 1876 and 1888, and then a long span in which there's not a divergence, and then you have the year 2000, um, in which, you know, there's a very small but but genuine popular vote victory by Al Gore, but of course, George W. Bush becomes the president. Then you have 2016, um, in which Hillary Clinton does win the national popular vote by several million votes, but of course, Donald Trump prevails in the Electoral College. And then in 2020, we come really, really close to that, which I think people don't always realize because Biden won a very decisive 
both popular victory, right, approximately 7 million, and also a significant electoral college victory. But the margins in several critical states were tiny. So the number I think is, is, is a reliable figure that I have seen is that if you had 44 thousand. So that's the figure. Additional Trump votes across three states, Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin, you would have gotten a 269-269 tie in the Electoral College. So that's where we would have been. Um, and that's, you know, that's moving 10 or 15,000 votes in three states. That's a tiny number and significant, you know, in states with, with relatively large populations. And so we came close in 2020 to this happening twice in a row with an enormous divergence mm -hmm. uh, the second the second time. And that's, you know, that would have been three over 20 years, but we've already had, we have had two over 20 years. And that, I think, becomes an increasingly untenable state of affairs when we have this completely archaic scheme that can give rise to this kind of divergence, uh, but that that is, you know, completely incompatible with our basic conceptions of, you know, democracy, majority rule, and popular sovereignty. And, and this isn't just a, a democratic thing, just to be clear. I mean, if Kerry, John Kerry, had gotten 60,000 more votes in Ohio, he would have carried the Electoral College, but lost the popular vote to George W. Bush. So this is a uh, this isn't about partisanship. This is about thinking about why, what purpose does the Electoral College have in our in our world now? And can we rely on people to have every vote be counted equally? Yeah. And, and Mike is talking about the, the 2004 election. And I do think that that is, in some ways, there's a historical counterfactual in which those 60,000 votes flip and you do have uh, John Kerry win the losing the popular vote. And then I think the partisan valence of this issue would look really different. And it yeah. is, I think it, it, it is, it is not complete accident that it is the case that you have these divergences that, you know, advantage the Republican candidate and disadvantage the Democratic candidate in the recent cycles. But that is not inevitable, like a law of political gravity. And it did not have to be this way. And, right. and I think it is, it is unfortunate that I think because of the way the splits have broken in the recent cycles where, there, where there's been a split, I do think that some people have gotten this idea that this is a, a reform that, that only Democrats both do and should favor. And I think that is emphatically not correct. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is the national popular vote. What do we need and how can we get it? Our guests this afternoon are Kate Shaw, professor of law, University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School, and co-host of the Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny, along with Mike Saxel, former speaker of the Maine House of Representatives and managing principal of Main Street Solutions, the leading proponent of the Interstate Compact for the national popular vote here in Maine. This program was pre-recorded on February 14th. No listener calls are being taken. So Electoral College, big problem. What are the possible solutions, Kate? I mean, we're going to talk about the Interstate Compact quite a bit, but what else could we be thinking about? Well, the most obvious thing is to amend the Constitution, to eliminate the Electoral College. So Article 5 is the part of the Constitution that says how you can amend it, and it's really, really hard to do. It requires a two-thirds vote in each House of Congress and ratification in three-quarters of the states, and we have not done that very many times. Kind of, we've done it 27 times, but the first 10 happened all at once in the Bill of Rights, and so we've really only done it 
you know, 17 times um, in the, you know, sort of more recent history. And we haven't really meaningfully done it since 1971, when we gave 18-year-olds the right to vote nationwide. That was the 26th Amendment. We also amended the Constitution in 1992 with the 27th Amendment, but that was just about congressional salaries and not like a particularly profound moment of constitutional change. So, you know, it has been over 30 years since we amended the Constitution at all, and over 50 years since the passage of any significant constitutional amendment. And you know, there have been really only two periods in our history where we have gone this long without amending the written constitution. And so I do think that, you know, there's a way in which we have kind of lost the both the habit and the muscle memory of changing the written constitution. And that is an enormous problem. And so I do think that galvanizing a new generation to think seriously about the prospect of constitutional change is really, really important. So I know we're going to pivot to the popular vote at some point, and I, I'm, I'm glad we're going to. But I also do think that that not giving up on the prospect of formal constitutional amendment is really important. And I actually am somewhat heartened by you know, I said there have been 27 amendments. There is an argument that actually there have been 28 and that the Equal Rights Amendment is actually properly understood as already the 28th Amendment of the Constitution and already in the Constitution because it was passed by the two-thirds required in each House of Congress. And it was not initial, not initially ratified by enough states, right? It fell short by three states. And those three, three of the missing states picked up the mantle and kind of reignited an, a, a generation's interest in ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment. And so there are now 38 states that have ratified that amendment. Now, some states have rescinded their ratification. So there are complex questions about, you know, whether the recent ratifications came too late to be valid and what the rescissions actually mean as a legal matter. So, uh, you know, that's not our topic for today. But I guess my point is that I think it's actually really healthy in a democracy for there to be, you know, active efforts to and active debates around amending the Constitution. And I sort of hope that this, that the ERA revival effort actually does give rise to other kind of creative imaginative thinking about constitutional amendment. And at the top of my list anyway, would be actually abolishing the Electoral College. But it's a very, very hard thing to do. So just... Uh... Joining Kate there, uh, one of the ways that we might be able to build common understanding and common will around amending the Constitution is exactly what they did when we passed women's suffrage, for example. It started in Wyoming. It did not start with an amendment to the U.S. Constitution giving women the right to vote. And several other states followed Wyoming. It caught fire. And that people understood that it was a franchise that should be extended. The same thing is really true with the national popular vote. It probably is not the last word on this, even if we get enough states to go go forward. I think we build confidence in the ability of individuals to vote on their own. And then eventually that leads to a constitutional amendment to abolish the electoral college and doing it in a different way. And, um, and that's what's been done with numerous amendments. So let's have our fingers crossed that we can get that muscle memory back. I know some people are advocating that we might be able to sort of work around this by um, expanding the House pretty dramatically, which would change the composition of the Electoral College. Why is that a good or not so good solution, Kate? Do you recognize what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think House expansion is a, is a reform that should be on the table. We haven't increased the size of the House in, I think, nearly a century. And for a long time, we actually did just increase the size of the House. So representation is of many, many more people than it has historically been. And I think there are problems for, you know, kind of representation broadly. And so I, I do think that giving, you know, many, many more representatives in Congress 
you still have this fundamental distortion problem, which is each state is going to, you know, because the Constitution isn't, you know, it's pretty clear on this, even if it's not clear on, on everything, gets its House members and its two senators. And so that's going to continue to confer a real advantage on the less populous states, even if the expansion of the House, I think, would help. So I don't think that's that this is an either or proposition. I think that that it would be good and important policy. It would help in presidential selection and also just more broadly in representation. Um, but I don't think that's a solution that should be pursued to the exclusion of these other efforts. Yeah, it's a great idea. So is ranked choice voting for the country. So is there's lots of amazing ideas, uh, all of which I would support. But the likelihood that we can achieve that in the short term, given the fact that the polarization in this Congress can't even pass a budget or a foreign aid bill. I'm not optimistic that those reforms can occur uh, in a thoughtful way in this in this environment. So it's up to the states to make changes. Mm-hmm. And actually, can I just say one thing quickly, just to kind of make clear what I mean about the kind of the advantaging of the residents of these less populated states. So Wyoming, for example, this is helpful, right? There are Wyoming has three electoral votes. That means that there is an electoral vote for every, I think the number is, pardon me, 192,000 residents of the state. So California has, you know, 54 electoral votes, and that translates to one electoral vote for every 719,000 residents. So, so it's like roughly seven to one. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that, yeah, yeah. Or, 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 or five to one, I think, but whatever it is, it's a very, it's significant. You have much more power relative to a Californian in choosing the president if you live in Wyoming. And that and expanding the house would, I think, again, mitigate but not at all eliminate that problem and that disparity. Mike, what Kate just yeah. talked about, the small state bias, is one of the reasons that I think some Maine people think this is not a right answer for Maine. What do you say to them? I say that every vote should be equal and that when you elect a governor in the state of Maine, it's not the legislature that chooses the governor. It's the people that choose the governor. It's not the legislature that chooses the state Senate. You know, even though in the, we used to, the legislatures used to choose United States senators, we now directly elect them. I think the uh, idea that, I think uh, mathematically, Kate is 100% right about Wyoming's power. But I think if you ask Wyoming, uh, besides Dick Cheney going hunting when the last time they had, you know, a presidential visits or be very few times because they don't matter in that scheme of chasing the persuadable vote. And the same is true in almost the entire country. I, I guess if I lived in the second congressional district, I would admit that there's some interest from some presidential candidates sometimes sort of as a New Hampshire afterthought to come to Maine. New Hampshire, true swing state, at least in the past, now it's kind of a blue state for presidential elections. And so they would come over every once in a while. But really, the kind of attention you're gonna get in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, that's the real deal. Those, that's where they're, they're gonna spend hundreds of millions of dollars. In Maine, they're gonna fly by land in the Bangor International Airport, refuel, have a talk, and leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I, I I totally agree with that. The kind of the, the numbers, it is not. I think it is just a misconception that there is this enormous small state advantage that the electoral college scheme creates. The enormous advantage is for swing states, and 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 that is not a fixed set of states. So that's something sometimes proponents will say. Well, but swing states, you know, as I was just talking about with New York or you know New Hampshire, less of a swing than it once was in presidential cycles. Obviously, it's not the set of seven or ten or whatever the number is of battleground states is not fixed and unchanging. It 
does move over time. Obviously, Florida and Ohio were really important swing states in presidential elections and much less so right now. Um, so so those it's dynamic, but it still is the case that in any snapshot moment, there is a subset of the country whose population and whose interests are wildly overvalued in presidential election cycles in a way that is really destructive and damaging, um, it, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, yes. So presidential candidates don't come through safe states unless they're there to raise money. That is just, I think, you know, the, the numbers make that really clear. Um, and I think that means a couple of things. One, it actually does mean there's less interest in the presidential election in those states, and that can have real down-ballot consequences. So it can hurt democracy you know, well below the presidential slot on the ballot if there's just not attention paid to that particular state. So I think that's you know, one damaging consequence. Um, and another one has to do with what it does to elevate certain policy issues and to ignore from the perspective of national debate, other kinds of policy issues. So the professor Lawrence Lessig at uh, Harvard always gives this example, which I find really helpful. Um, and that is that there are many, many times more Americans employed doing jobs in solar energy production than coal production. But Pennsylvania, which is a critical, critical presidential battleground state, you know, there's still some coal that people and, and you know, other energy production there as well. But coal is still a real thing in Pennsylvania. You hear way, way, way more about coal than solar in presidential debates. And that's because the big solar states now there's, you know, Arizona, but California and Texas and states that are really, really not in play presidentially are the big states where the solar jobs are. And actually, maybe it's really important to talk about solar production and the jobs in the in that sector. And yet they're just not going to be discussed because of where they happen to mostly cluster. And that's one small, but I think illustrative example of how certain issues get elevated and certain issues get disregarded in presidential politics. And that matters a lot for the kind of policy priorities and agenda of the country. Yeah, it's a perversion of uh, of the public debate in the public stage. States that are in play get more money from emergency management. They get more money, you know. We have ethanol thanks to the years ago when Iowa was a swing state, and it wasn't probably the right answer, and right. it's certainly not the right answer for my chances. Yeah. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Mike Saxel, former Speaker of the Maine House of Representatives and Managing Principal of Maine Street Solutions, the leading proponent of the national popular vote here in Maine. Also with us is Kate Shaw, Professor of Law, University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School, and co-host of the Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Our topic today is the national popular vote. What do we need? How can we get it? This show was pre-recorded. Send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. So we spent the first half hour trashing the Electoral College and why it's a problem. Let's now describe exactly what is the interstate compact for the national popular vote and how would it work? And I'll punt that to you, Mike. Sure, I'll take a first crack at it. So the national popular vote is the idea that through something called an interstate compact, and Maine's in about 25, 35 interstate compacts, or about 250 around the country, through something called an interstate compact where a bunch of states band together to do something, we could dedicate our electors to the person who wins the popular vote nationally. And so... If we pass the national popular vote in Maine this year, for example, the congressional district distribution would not go away because we have to get to the tipping point of 270 electors 
Right now, national popular vote has been adopted in enough states to represent 205 electors. If Maine uh, joined in, we'd be all the way to 209. And <laughs> Michigan is uh, considered, uh, Minnesota did it earlier this year, and Michigan is pending in Michigan as well. Uh, but we won't get there for this presidential election. But it, we will make a step forward towards a system where every vote is equal. And uh, and that would be a good step forward for the state of Maine. Okay, talk, say, embellish that, if you will, how the national popular vote, how these compacts work. Sure. And and I know Mike is really immersed in this, So, but you know, mine is more of an academic perspective. But this is an idea that has existed, I think, in various forms since the 1970s, maybe even longer. Um, but the current version is the one that was crafted in, I think, 2004 by a you know, former computer scientist and inventor who had this real background um, as the inventor of the scratch-off lottery ticket with interstate compacts, which are very, very common, right? Agreements that states reach, independent of the federal government, to sort of do something together. Lottery is one of many, many examples. But there's lots of compacts that states enter into with other states. And the idea here is essentially just to avoid or circumvent the really arduous process of amending the Constitution that we were just talking about earlier in the hour um, and not to implicate some of the collective action problems that we were also talking about with a state sort of saying it's going to unilaterally adopt a Maine or Nebraska kind of non-winner-take-all approach to elector allocation. Um, so this would be something that wouldn't require amending the Constitution, but it would functionally move us once the number of, you know, joining states reach this 270 threshold would functionally move us to a scheme where because these states would cast their electoral votes for the winner of the national popular vote, that's who would, by definition, by design, win the presidency. And so it would completely avoid these, you know, misfire or mistake scenarios that, you know, di produce a divergent result between the popular vote and the electoral college winner. Um, so so that's that, that, that's the theory of it. And it is not just kind of an abstract academic idea, right? Like as Mike obviously knows well, this is has actually been passed into law in a significant number of states and is in play in others. Now, not in enough others that it could possibly actually be operational by the time of the you know November election. But I think by the 2028 election, it's not, you know, depending on how things break, it could actually happen. Um, and like many innovative ideas, it is not without some legal risk that I'm happy Happy to talk about, but I do think that it, it is actually a pretty ingenious solution to, the, to some of the problems with how hard it is to amend the Constitution and how hard it is to get a state to act alone. Here, it only kicks in if enough states have joined that it would work as designed and the popular vote winner would become the president. Um, and so I actually think it has a lot to recommend it, but obviously there are a number of states that would have to actually join the compact before, before it would actually, you know, become activated and and work as intended. Is it a partisan issue, Mike? I mean, is it like all the blue states are passing it? How are we going to get to 270 without some purple states? So uh, in Maine, it's not a partisan issue. Uh, a former Senate Majority Leader, uh, Matt Puglia, who's still in the Maine Senate, uh, is a Republican and he's supportive and had very good conversations with other Republicans as well. Former Senate Majority Leader, another former Senate Majority Leader, Garrett Mason, who's no longer serving, but he's working hard on it. So it's not partisan in Maine. Uh, the governor's brother, uh, Peter Mills, when he was a Republican state senator, also voted for it uh, at the very first time we had the bill. So it's uh, it's not partisan Maine. Nationally, the question is a good one. There are very few states that are controlled all by Democrats. And so because this has become somewhat partisan, it's difficult to pass it in every legislature. So I think the plan is, is to work with the states that are interested, 
if there are states that have initiatives that may seem to be red, but actually are blue or purple to uh, run uh, initiatives in those states. So Arizona would be a good example of an initiative state where a national popular vote could easily be adopted. And the numbers bear out. Uh, The Pew Charitable Trust did a great poll recently on national popular vote, shows that something like over 80% of Democrats support it, over 70% of independents support it. And for non-self-identified conservative Republicans, so more moderate Republicans, something like two-thirds of them supported it as well. Something like 47% of Republicans supported it as well. So it's not a hard idea. I mean, I think when you explain to somebody, do you think your vote should count for president and should every vote be equal? Most people think that's what it is right now. I think it's very possible that in Ohio or a or an Arizona could adopt the national popular vote and bring us to that magic 270. I mean, people have been talking since 2010 about Texas turning blue. And, you know, we keep thinking Texas is going to turn blue, but Texas doesn't turn blue. But, I mean, something like that would surely change the calculation on this, right? Go ahead, Kate. You mean if Texas turned blue and decided to adopt the, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's you know, yeah, you, you, I think that you, if you have one, if you have a couple of other sort of smaller states cross the line, and I think Texas would take you to 270, Mike probably has the math sort of uh, more down um, than I do. Certainly, you, you would need Texas and a couple of others to get us from 195 to 270, but not a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think that's right. I mean, I do think that it's turning blue around the corner is um, is not materializing as quickly as I think a lot of people predicted. But I do think that kind of, you know, demographic trends are such that it does see it seems hard to imagine a world where Texas doesn't turn blue. It's a question to my mind of of when and not if. But I do think that, you know, there are voter suppression efforts in a lot of states, Texas in, in many ways chief among them, that are, you know, that significantly counter the trends if, if you know, if, if voting had no obstacles attached to it. I think that the sort of Texas turns blue scenario happens a lot faster than the world that we live in. So I think that's an important dynamic as well. Um, the idea of voter suppression is also a really important one when you're talking about the national popular vote, because when you have new laws in Georgia, which at least my perception is, will limit access to the ballot for some people uh, and are intended to suppress votes, then those twelve that, that margin of 12,000 votes in Georgia doesn't become as important because the seven or eight million dollar million voter margin nationally is really what makes a difference. And it's very hard to overcome that broader picture. And the other piece on this is that under a national popular vote, Democrats in Texas would have a meaningful impact on the election. And let's be clear here, Republicans in California would also have a meaningful impact. And the way people would have to campaign in Maine, in Alabama, in California, in Texas would be very different. And turning out every vote would be important rather than suppressing as many as you can. And so that's exciting. Well, and that was actually the question I was going to ask, would would abolishing the Electoral College or passing this National Popular Vote Compact, would it lessen pressure on voter suppression and make the stakes lower so that states wouldn't be working so hard to keep people from voting? I totally agree with with that. And I think that it is complex and 
you know, almost Rube Goldbergian sort of scheme that is the Electoral College. And we haven't really talked through the mechanics and not even that important, but, you know, that the main, the sort of key winner take all and, you know, 48 states. And then also this kind of multi-step process at which there are these multiple moments. The electors cast their votes in each state. Those votes go to Congress. Congress actually opens them. The vice president provides that the votes shall be counted. That is obviously the event that the January 6th attack on the Capitol was designed to disrupt. So all of these sort of points in this very complicated scheme present opportunities for potential manipulation or exploitation. Um, And the fact that any given state, like the math we were just talking about with Georgia and Arizona and Wisconsin being so close in 2020, any given state could be outcome determinative. And I think that that is right, that that means that not only there is this kind of prospect of, of things like manipulation, but also the incentives for bad actors to engage in manipulation of the vote and denial or obstruction of of access. I mean, whether we're talking about, you know, in, on election day itself or through the passage and implementation of laws that make it more difficult to vote or, or, or all of the above, that is less likely to be a fruitful endeavor in a nationwide election where, you know, it's it's unlikely that denying, managing to deny the vote to a small group of people in a single outcome determinative state is going to make a difference. And also how you would even know how to target those efforts is much less obvious if we're talking about a nationwide election. So I think that all of those dynamics also would be lessened, at least in a genuine national popular election for president. All right, Kate, you've been hinting Um, since the top of the show about the complications and the things that could maybe make this a little messy. So let's spend a few minutes on that. First of all, who decides who won? Well, let's just start with that. Go ahead. Well, so, you know, in in terms of the, the, you would, I think, under the popular vote in terms of the mechanics of it, I'm going to defer to Mike. But it will. There is not going to be the, the the compact does not create some new federal body. It would still be state election bodies that would do the count that would provide the tabulations. Um, And there would be, and as recent cycles have shown, there's not, there has not been a really, really hard and close question nationwide, even if there have been hard and close questions in individual states. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of trouble figuring out who actually amassed the most votes nationwide. So uh, to my mind, that's not sort of where the concern potentially lies. I think it's more how challenges could be brought to the compact as inconsistent with various constitutional rules and principles, um, and what would happen if a state tried to change its mind. So maybe to take the first of those, and I'm sure these are, again, things that Mike uh, has thought about. um, So I'll, I'll just sort of take a crack at sort of one issue, which is that the Constitution has in it a clause that is known as the Compact Clause, which says that no state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. And that sounds like pretty categorical language. Um, But, and there's a really important but here, there are, as we have already talked about, tons of interstate, multi-state compacts, some of which are entered into and long have been without the consent of Congress, and the Supreme Court has upheld those multi-state compacts. So a very famous one is the multi-state tax compact entered into without the consent of Congress, and the court said that was fine. So the literal language of the compact clause has not been interpreted the way it sounds, you know, when you just read the words. And so I think that that, you know, means that the the language of that clause is not necessarily fatal to the constitutionality of the compact. Um, and yet it could be challenged on the grounds that it's not permitted by the compact clause and that this textualist Supreme Court might say something like, well, those earlier cases did not 
you know, read with sufficient kind of focus on text what this language means. And in fact, it does require congressional consent for something this important. Congress has not consented to the interstate compact. And so that would be one theory on which an unsuc- you know, say the loser of the of the nationwide popular vote could bring this kind of challenge, you know, seeking to invalidate the compact. So that is, I think, one of the, the things that you know, is out there and makes me somewhat nervous. Now, I don't think I should have said this at the beginning, but I don't think any of these are necessarily fatal flaws at all uh, with a compact, but just that anything that is novel carries with it a degree of risk and uncertainty. And so this is, this is, I think, one of those risks. We are all very well aware that that challenge will be made. It's 100% certain that somebody will challenge whether we need congressional approval. And there's two ways to solve that. The first was case rate. We've, uh, Something like 60% of compacts don't have congressional authority right now. So it's very possible that we would win the court case. The other thing is we could pass it in Congress, and that's very possible. We'll the Congress could endorse the compact, right? Okay. Yeah, yep. right. And they don't rescind them. So we could definitely do that. It's not subject to, you know, once you do it, you're pretty much there. So they're both possibilities, and and we probably will face at least one of them. I want to talk some more about the complications, but let me just do a quick station break, then we'll come right back. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Mike Saxel, former Speaker of the Maine House of Representatives and Managing Principal of Maine Street Solutions, the leading proponent of the National Popular Vote Compact in Maine. And also with us, Kate Shaw, Professor of Law, University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School, and co-host of the Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny. This program was pre-recorded on February 14th. No listener calls are being taken. We're at that point in the show where we're talking about what could go wrong if we pass the National Popular Vote Compact and how fatal are these flaws. And we just talked about uh, challenges to the compact clause. And I think you were going to try to say something, Kate, so jump in. Oh, just you know, I, I don't know if there's more to say about the compact clause. I think I think it's right that there that none of these is necessarily a fatal objection. But there is also an argument that that I suppose could be made that where if a state ends up, you know, awarding its electoral votes under the compact to somebody who did not win and maybe who lost badly the votes in that, you know, in that state, conceive of a challenge grounded in some notion that awarding a state's electoral votes to someone other than the individual selected by that state's voters is in some tension with either equal protection principles or the one person, one vote principle that sort of emanates from a few different provisions in the Constitution, or maybe is subject to there's a kind of quirky little provision in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. So Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is the one that we all just became aware of that right disqualifies uh, insurrectionists from holding public office. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment is the one that contains the guarantees of equal protection and due process and privileges and immunities. But Section 2 is this interesting little provision that was passed, it was included in the 14th Amendment before the 15th Amendment actually outright denied, outright prohibited the denial of the vote on the basis of race. The Section 2 of the 14th basically said if a state denies the vote to some people, then its congressional allocation will be reduced accordingly. So it kind of tried to do sort of through some soft mechanism, something that what the 15th Amendment later did, which is prohibit race discrimination in, in, in voting. Anyway, so Maybe there's some argument that states are denying the votes of their citizens in ways that should reduce their representation in Congress. I'm not sure how exactly the, the claim would be would be framed. Um, but those are the concerns, I think, that 
could be raised, although I think the compact clause one is probably the most serious uh, kind of constitutional obstacle. You talked uh, about um, rescissions uh, in the context of the um, Equal Rights Amendment before. What about rescissions? Like somebody changes their mind and tries to rescind their earlier joining of the compact. Mike? Two things. On the rescission issue, um, the compact is uh, – uh, would allow you to uh, uh, withdraw, but not during the process of a presidential election. And so it's very clear on that, on that grounds. And so it is possible we would have a compact and then not have a compact and then have a compact, but it wouldn't create confusion during a presidential election because of the time agreements with the states that pass it. So uh, like Maine, Maine joins the Democrat, we all think it's going to be the Democrat that wins Oh my God! The Republican wins, and Maine changes it, changes its mind. Like yeah. we don't, we don't want to do it. Um, We're bound okay. uh, in that presidential election to have uh, uh, the whoever won the popular vote uh, be president of the United States, and that's that's the right answer. And just going back for a second on the constitutional issue around the designation of electors, as as we've already discussed a little bit, states have frequently changed the way they designate electors. States have been given the plenary authority in the Constitution to determine how to allocate their electors. You know, Maine, there's winner take all. There's the congressional district method. Arizona has a bill pending to remove the the vote from the people and make it the legislature, the gerrymandered legislature, who would determine how the electors uh, would vote. So those are all plausible. You know, might there be a, a court case? There might be, but the grounds for maintaining the the national popular vote, we feel pretty strongly that we would be the victor in that, uh, whether you are uh, parsing the originalist uh, version of a constitution or you're, or you're more of a, a modern take on the constitution. So, I mean, like, are there two slates of electors like there are now under the compact? Go ahead, Mike, you explain it. Yep, that's what there are. They would be uh, the Democrats would select their electors. We'll do it at our state convention on May 5th, I think. The Republicans, I don't know when their convention is, but they would select their electors. And then whoever uh, won the popular vote would be designated on behalf of the state of Maine to place their votes in Augusta. Same exact thing. They would convene the Electoral College. They would place their votes for whoever won the national popular vote. And it's just the same exact way as it's done today. It's just how they uh, how we would obligate their vote is will be changed from being uh, a congressional district basis to whoever wins the national vote. And we talked earlier about faithless electors, which is somebody who doesn't vote the way their state instructed them to vote. Um, and I think you said, Mike, that you thought the compact would lessen the risk of that somehow. Could you explain what you meant by that? The likelihood that if you went to the Democratic State Convention and ran a competitive campaign to become an elector, and then you were selected as an elector, and then your candidate won the national vote, that the likelihood that you would be a faithless elector is marginal at best, pretty inconceivable, the person who won the national popular vote wins. Go ahead, Kate. I see you nodding along here. What about this faithless elector business? Uh, oh, I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't know if the compact provides for this, but in general, you know, it, 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 there has been since, you know, we've had this electoral college, um, both a fear of and the occasional actual practice of an elector not 
casting a vote consistent with the statewide uh, winner. And in 2016, there was a little bit of a movement to actually try to galvanize a lot of electors to defect. And the idea was these were anti-Trump electors who were trying to basically get enough Trump electors who were convinced that that Trump was a dangerous candidate and they should defect and vote for some other Republican. There was sort of a um, right in Colin Powell. There were other sorts of efforts afoot, ended up not really getting any traction. And these were Clinton electors who ended up defecting and voting for someone else, um, but no actual Trump electors did. Um, but it, it spurred a Supreme Court case in 2020 that actually raised the question, do electors have some constitutional authority to vote their conscience. Is that what the Electoral College means? And so any state that tries to compel electors to vote in any particular way can't do that because of the Constitution. And the Supreme Court unanimously said, no, that's wrong. Um, mm -hmm. States can compel electors to vote. So now some states have you know, penalty provisions. Some states will just replace you if you're going to vote in a way inconsistent with the state popular vote. So it's not even a real problem under our current system. So I can't imagine it would be exacerbated. But but it's interesting if the compact specifically contemplates um, the possibility of a faithless elector and says that it doesn't actually affect the math of the mm. compact overall. That does not, that, that, that definitely, it seems to me to assuage any concerns about faithlessness. If it, people want to get all geeky on it, they should can dig in on a great Brookings uh, report uh, and just Google Brookings, national popular vote, faithless elector, pop right. I think I put that on our website for the show. So if you find lwvme.org and the democracy forum, you'll see that article linked um, in the resources section. Um, so have we covered all of the places where this could get derailed? Anything else we should have in mind? I mean, I guess I will just say one thing. I was talking mostly about court cases. Um, I think it's not impossible that a state actor, say a governor or a secretary of state, who was not on board with the state joining the compact and whose preferred candidate does not win nationwide, decides to try to send, say, an alternate slate of electors to D.C. to say, no, our state is actually casting its vote consistent with the state, so to unilaterally break from the compact. Now, I I, I take Mike's point that the terms of the contact, con, uh, the, the terms rather of the compact preclude that or would make that unlawful, but you could imagine a state actor saying, well, I have to act consistent with what I understand the Constitution to require, and I don't think the compact is constitutional, so at least to frame in constitutional terms an effort to derail the compact. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility of that. But I also don't think that's a fatal objection because we can we obviously have seen, and I'm sure can see again, actors proceeding in ways that are unlawful or ultra-virus or not authorized by, by the current law. And so I, I don't think that the status quo in any way prevents that kind of disruptive action. And so I, so there's no reason to my mind for that to be a, a serious or kind of fatal objection to the compact. But in terms of the things that could happen, I think that has to be contemplated as a possibility. Sure. Uh, absolutely. And it'll be interesting to see what the Supreme Court and how the Supreme Court rules on the pending case around disqualifying President Trump for insurrection. But if Justice Jackson's uh, words are any uh, indication of where they're going. The idea of a single state taking action to subvert a national election is probably not going to hold water with the Supreme Court. And that seemed like, regardless of whether they were conservative or or more progressive, that the idea that a state would take an action that undermine the country or, or impact a presidential election, probably not going to happen. What are the chances then um, that passing the interstate compact or getting close even would revitalize efforts to amend the constitution proper. Great. 
<laughs> Do you think so, really, politically, that w would um, have a chance of actually happening as it did with the equal with the um, uh, women's suffrage amendment? I defer to Kate. She's yeah. I mean, I, I think that that it, it's hard to know how much past is prologue here, but it's certainly with the Nineteenth Amendment, the suffrage amendment. It's absolutely right that it was by the time, you know, the efforts really began in the states and a lot of states codified the right to vote for women so that by the time the 19th Amendment was enacted, I don't have the number at the ready, 30 maybe states already themselves guaranteed the right to vote. So the federal government then just and the federal constitution then just caught up with what had already really taken hold in the state. So I do think that there is this powerful way that state level action can change national norms and expectations. And then the federal constitution just has to get amended to catch up with what has already taken hold. And we do have that script historically. Um, we just have, I think, more challenging politics and amassing a supermajority for anything feels really, really hard right now. But I think the point is that you do the ground level work to build the support in enough states that it becomes almost inevitable in Congress. And then ratification in the states is sort of foregone if enough states have already gotten on board. And so it, you know, is it sort of an optimistic vision of what is possible in our politics? Absolutely. But I don't think it's an impossible one. All right. We have taken up pretty much the whole hour, but I would like to give you each at least a part of a minute to wrap it up. And Mike, I'll put it to you first. Um, what are your parting thoughts? Well, uh, my most important parting thought is that I wish I could audit Kate's constitutional law class. <laughs> I've learned a ton just listening to her today. Um, I think you know, on national popular vote, it's really the fundamental question is, do you want every vote to be equal? You know, and I, I really think that's a fundamental grounding of our democracy, and I believe in it, and I think it will help strengthen our democracy and help uh, avoid feelings of, of division like January 6th produced. And uh, that's my hope for our democracy, is that we can all have an equal say in what happens in this country. Before I let you off, Mike, just very quickly, where does this stand in Maine right now and when might it come up for a floor vote? So we have an interesting uh, legislative position. We have all the House Democrats, except for one, uh, supporting national popular vote. Uh, two senators, two Democratic senators and one Democratic House member wanting to supporting national popular vote, but wanting the state to have the final say. And then all the Republicans uh, on the Committee of Jurisdiction against it. I expect the bill to come out of committee in the next two or three weeks. Depends on language review. It's a technical thing. Uh, and then uh, we'll probably have votes at the end of February, beginning of March. Thanks, Mike. All right. Parting thoughts from you, Kate. Sure. Maybe I'll just say that. For in almost every single election we ever participate in, right, from like seventh grade class representative to the governor of our state, the person who gets the most votes wins. That is the sort of baseline rule of and sort of like operating principle of our elections. And there is really one election and it is the most important election in our lives that does not follow that rule. And that is the election for the president. And I think that this not national popular vote approach is would simply affect a restoration of that basic democratic principle. And so um, it seems like an effort very, very kind of worth fighting for. Um, and maybe as we have been discussing, it could actually set in motion a, a kind of a larger and more formal constitutional change. 
Thank you both so much. That's our show for today. Thank you to our guest this afternoon, Mike Saxel, former Speaker of the Maine House of Representatives and Managing Principal of Main Street Solutions, the leading proponent of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact here in Maine, and Kate Shaw, Professor of Law, University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School, co-host of the Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU. UFM streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is LWVME.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can subscribe to our podcast to LWVME.org. Thanks for listening. See you next month. 